0: Mauna Loa, the world's largest active volcano, is reawakening, says Frank Truesdale. He's a research geologist with the U.S. Geological Survey's Hawaiian Volcano Observatory uh, and was recently recognized by the U.S. Department of the Interior as the world's authority on Mauna Loa. Truesdale spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman pote this morning about what an eruption of the massive Mauna Loa might mean for residents of Hawaii Island.
1: Mauna Loa by itself is almost as large as the rest of all the Hawaiian islands put together. In the last roughly 200 years, the eruption frequency is about one eruption every five years. But the work that I've been doing, looking at the past geologic history, pre-contact and even pre-human occupation of the island, I search back about 3,000 years Eruption frequency is about one eruption every six years.
2: And when was the last eruption of Mauna Loa?
1: Last eruption of Mauna Loa was in 1984. When I say that it erupted once every six years, it's a time average. Now, when we're looking into the past history, we're dating lava flows using radiocarbon. And radiocarbon has uncertainties of plus or minus, let's say, 25 years. So it's very possible that we had clustering of eruptions with longer repose times and then another cluster where Mauna Loa will erupt frequently.
2: Frank, based on the survey data that you have collected, what would be more surprising to you if Mauna Loa erupted this year or if it went another two decades without erupting?
1: I would say that right now the signs are pointing to the influx of magma into the volcano. Mauna Loa is not a dead volcano. The recent seismicity is reflective of the ingress of magma into the reservoir. We have deformation monitors or GPS systems on the flank that show a swelling of the volcano. We're looking at a reawakening of Mauna Loa, although an eruption is not imminent. I would say that either scenario could be equally likely at this point in time because we've had periods in the recent past where we've seen a pulse of magma come into the volcano an increase in seismicity, a swelling of the volcano, and then the volcano goes quiescent for another for a few years. And then we see another pulse of lava come in and we've seen at least two to three episodes of these happen in the recent past.
2: We don't have a button we can press to stop an eruption. So our preparedness relies on our ability to give people time. But when a volcano will erupt is just one part of the puzzle. You have also done work looking at where Mount Aloha's flows may occur based on the patterns of eruptions. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: So, one of the outcomes from looking at the long term eruptive history of the volcano is to look at the frequency of eruptions for the different geographic sectors on the flanks of the volcano. Now, this volcano, like Kilauea, has a summit caldera and two radiating rift zones, one that goes to the northeast and the other that goes to the south-southwest. Now, we know that the summit and the rift zones have the most frequent eruptions, or they erupt most frequently. And so, based on that work, we have devised a series of lava inundation maps. People who live on the island can recognize, by using these maps, where they live, Then they can identify upslope what segment will impact them. So if there's an eruption and the flows happen to go into that geographic sector where people live, then they know, based on their own research, that they could be impacted and hopefully they will have made some preparation.
2: And these maps, for those who have not yet had an opportunity to take a closer look at them. You mentioned that there are inundation zones that impact not just the immediate surrounding area or communities near Mauna Loa, but also as far away as Hilo, and then as far north as Puaco. Is the flow of Mauna Loa, should an eruption occur, equally likely to impact any one of these communities? You've
1: got to recognize that volcanology is a relatively new science, and we're trying to forecast an eruption based on some very sophisticated physics and circumstances which are hard to predict within a volcano. We cannot say with absolute certainty that after the summit phase has initiated in the last 200 years, every single eruption is at a summit phase first. We cannot tell you whether or not it's going to go into the northeast drift zone or the southwest rift zone or maybe even a radial vent. People should be prepared. Now we've also created maps that show once an eruption starts, how quickly lava flows can get to the different regions on the flank of the volcano. So let's go back to the Northeast Rift and Hilo as an example. lava flow initiates on the Northeast Rift Zone and based on past two hundred years of eruptive history we know that it'll take weeks to months to get there. In contrast, along the southwest rift zone, i. e. the southwest coast of the big island, we know that lava flows can reach the ocean in a matter of hours.
0: That was Frank Truesdale, a research geologist with the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory, talking with HPR Savannah Harriman Pote this morning about how to prepare in case of a Mauna Loa eruption. The Big Island experienced a 5.0 quake on Friday and hundreds of aftershocks. Truesdale says those inundation maps showing how your specific community might be affected are available on the HVO website as well as Hawaii's public libraries. We'll have links to more resources on the conversation page on HawaiiPublicRadio.org later today.
3: Support for HPR comes from Le Jardin Academy, a PK-12 to school featuring an international baccalaureate program with a campus located on a Kailua mountainside. November 5th open house registration at lejardinacademy.org. Joining us
0: for today's reality check is Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair, here to talk about the latest guilty plea from a city worker in a corruption scandal at the long-troubled Department of Planning and Permitting. Good morning, Chad.
4: Good morning, Catherine.
0: So you've got a story here by Christina Jedra. Uh, I know she's she's busy in court today. That's
4: yeah, she's week. been spending a, a lot of time, her uh, work time in court, because of all the things that have been going on. And this particular story is, yeah, it's the continuing saga of what's going on at the Department of Planning and Permitting. And so what happened earlier this week, uh, Wayne Inouye, uh, he was uh, the former uh, chief building inspector for DPP. He, he had been there for uh, almost 40 years He ended up retiring uh, in 2017. Uh, By the way, he is the highest ranking official so far in this scandal, which broke uh, well over a year ago. But anyway, Wayne Annoy uh, pleaded guilty in federal court to accepting over $100,000 in bribes. Why? To expedite permits. This was... Uh, from 2012 to 2017, so just before he retired. Uh, and one of those bribes included a an architect, Bill Wong, who um, had some permits that he needed to move through. And uh, Mr. Wong apparently donated over $89,000, or bribed, rather. That's the proper word, not donated. <laughs> uh, so let me clarify that.
0: Well, you know, gosh, it, it is stunning to think that this was, you know, over a decade, 2012,
4: Right, and Annoy, actually in his own words before the court, admitted that he had been asked uh, to pre-screen uh, and expedite uh, these permit requests, to even review in some cases before they were submitted to, to DPP, and, and he's in big trouble for that. Uh, according to Christina's story, he faces up to 20 years in prison for each of the five counts of what is known as honest services wire fraud. That sentencing won't be until March. But on top of that, Mr. Inouye is also up to potentially five years penalty for lying to federal prosecutors. Uh, And even (laughs) on top of that, there is even a possibility that Wayne Inouye will be on on, um, the tab for over $100,000 in fines and and, and restitution. So we'll see how it all shakes out. Uh, but that's a pretty pretty big penalty that he's looking at.
0: Yeah. I mean, we did see, what was it, four others, right, that... Uh...
4: Right. Three, three others now. There were mm-hmm. five total. Three others have already pleaded guilty. There is a fifth... Uh, um, person uh, who has pled not guilty, this is all, again, from last March's, meaning March 2021, the, when the scandal broke, uh, th- that person faces a trial come January. In the case of Inouye, by the way, initially he did plead not guilty, then changed that, um, and according to Christina's reporting, did not express any remorse, but also chose not to go the plea bargain route uh, either, so no word there exactly uh, what he felt, but as I said, he did it in, acknowledge to the court his wrongdoing.
0: Yeah, and um, I, I don't know why the sentencing is is uh, so far off, um, but I know uh, judging by the hits that the story has gotten, that lots of people are uh, weighing <laughs> yeah. in, that they're, they're pretty upset, you know, uh, with this latest development in the public uh, corruption scandal.
4: Yeah, Christina did get a quote from Don Takeuchi- Puna, she's the uh, acting director over there at DPP. Of course, Dina Chuda uh, uh, stepped down earlier this year. Disagreements with Mayor Blangiardi, but uh, DPP is assuring people that, uh, assuring the public that the department is taking steps to make sure that criminal behavior does not happen happen again. But as as we all know, what's gone on at DPP is has been very. Decades, really, in so many ways. And, and now, finally, we're having some, some action on that. And one wonders, of course, whether there's there's more indictments to follow. I, I, I would say we're probably not completely done with this story yet.
0: Yeah, it is dismaying, though, to know that it has happened over such a long period. And, you know, even when there were complaints that, hey, something's not right. Uh, right. So, yeah, um, we'll see what else uh, happens. But thanks so much, Chad. Sure, Catherine. That was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's reality check. To read Christina Jedriss' full story, go to civilbeat.org. <laughs>
3: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Haleakalā Ranch with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at HaleakalāRanch.com.
0: Neck and neck is how some predict the Maui race between incumbent Tasha Kama and challenger Buddy Nobriga to be at the polls in November. That's how it was in the primary. We heard from Nobriga yesterday. Today, it's Tasha Commons' turn. The retired pastor and former social justice organizer with Faith Action for Community Equity, FACE, Maui, uh, beat former Mayor Alan Arakawa in his effort to get his seat back. She now has a term on the council under her belt.
5: When I got in, and one of the reasons why I did run is because as a social justice organizer, you know, we are called to make a difference, right? And to, to use the work to move forward in, to be able to help other people. And when I looked around in my community, when I was working with ACE, there were so many issues, right? Because different ethnic groups that we were working with had different issues. I kind of wanted to have a big impact, not on issues that impacted certain racial groups, but everybody. And the issue that had at the time that was going on was housing. And at that time, I didn't know anything about housing except we didn't have enough. And when I got elected and I ran on that platform of being able to create more affordable housing, and, you know, as you're on the campaign trail, that becomes a monster for everybody who's running because all of a sudden there's an issue that they can hold on to. There's an issue that everybody else is talking about. And here's an issue that's a great need, And, you know, all of That kind of conversation that was going on. So, when I started to talk about it, I realized at that time that this issue was bigger than me. What I learned about it just on the campaign trail was the reason why we didn't have affordable housing was because people couldn't afford the prices that people were renting or even buying a home at that time. At that time, we're talking like $1,100 for a two bedroom if you're renting. And at that time, they're talking about a mortgage of like four or $500,000. And this is like four years ago and people were saying, no, we can't do that, it's too expensive. And I thought, well, I would have to agree with him, right? Because longer you stay on a campaign trail, the more things you learn from other candidates, especially those who are incumbents and they know what they're talking about. What I didn't know at that time was that not having money to pay for it was just one thing. There were a host of other reasons why we didn't have affordable housing. And a lot of it, even to this day, people say it's about political will. And I see that for myself firsthand on the council that everyone says yes, we want affordable housing, yes, we need affordable housing, but not here for whatever reasons. Sometimes it's traffic, sometimes it's because it's in a or adjacent to a flood zone, or because that is not an environmentally secure place. And they just go on and on and on about reasons why we shouldn't be building.
0: So are you more resolved to make sure that we can build those
5: homes and remove those barriers? Yes, even more so now because I know what the barriers are. One, it's the council, and I acknowledge that, that we make so much policies. And what we're really doing is we're stonewalling real good development from taking place. Now when I think about it, before the council got involved, housing was being built, right? I mean, because that's it's what developers do, it's what contractors do. The market takes care of itself. No, we want to go in there and we wanna we wanna condition certain projects because we don't like the developer, because he's just lining his pockets. But we don't mind giving support to a nonprofit developer who's not even from the from Hawaii. When you calculate what it costs the county to supplement that cost of that one unit, we end up paying more money per unit in terms of infrastructure costs, just so that that nonprofit developer can walk away clean. And it's like, we can't be doing stuff like that. We need to be a lot more smart about what the problem is. The other thing is is the zoning permitting. Well, we're the council. We can take care of those kinds of things. But again, it's that political will. We have the World to do that.
0: We hear a lot of talk about climate change and yeah, yeah. development along the shoreline. Those were startling images of those trees yeah. falling in the water. How do you envision balancing the desire to build and live along the shore and the
5: the threats that we're facing? First of all, it's like when we're kids, right? Somehow we were told that you don't build your house upon the sand. People who love Hawaii, they like the city, they want to build their house on the sand. And then they bounce to the water. Okay, so we got to help them, right? Well, sometimes I figure, Eva, you shouldn't have done that. Didn't your mother tell you that? But that's not the point. The point is now the hotels, people's homes are falling into the water. One of the things that came up to be able to help mitigate the cost of either getting rid of it or removing it, We don't allow people to build on the shore anymore. We try to discourage that kind of stuff from going on. But the issue of the climate change was we figured that if we created what we call a community facilities district is a tool that could be used by homeowners to be able to have the county pay up front to to mitigate their homes falling into the water and that they would, the county would get reimbursed to an agreement where these people through, I think their taxes or some sort, something like that, that they would use that program to be able to, to help bail them out. Council member Yuki Lacey is working on community facilities districts to help these people. I'm not clear about how that all works, because I know that when we talk to our county, they said it's never been done before. They've we've never done that. But they're not sure how complicated it would be to do that.
0: Would that be, what, charging an impact fee?
5: That could be. I'm not sure. All right. But you're open to looking at different things. Just because we know that there are hotels and people, you know, with money have built that. I mean, look, we've got here in Kahului, our wastewater treatment plant. That's right there on the edge, right in Kahului. And we also have our electric plant that needs to be moved, too. The problem with trying to move it now is that when we're looking for an alternative method, we're looking at solar and the solar companies that we're going to help to take care of our electric needs. Two out of the five companies have failed, so we're not even able to do that right now. But we know we have to move the wastewater treatment plant, and we know we have to move the electric plant we got to move those two because they're right there on the harbor. We need to figure out how to take care of those costs.
0: What do you want to say to voters? What is it that sets you aside from your challenger?
5: I think the only thing that sets me aside is the fact that I have been involved in the county. I'm an incumbent. Therefore, I'm a little bit more seasoned, I guess, is the word I was looking for in terms of understanding how things work in the county and having good relationships with the administrative side of our county which is the mayor and all of his department heads and the subdivisions and so on so i think that the thing that sets me apart from buddy is that i'm older i'm wiser and i'm more experienced like everything else you take it one step at a time and and you do your due diligence you do your good research you talk the people that have more information and knowledge and then you come up with some good solid solutions at least for me that's how I do things because I do not know the answer to everything and sometimes I can't even explain to other people things that's in my head mm-hmm. but I get the idea of how it works yeah. this concept takes a lot of bold move that sometimes is unprecedented, and it takes risk to do that. You do things for the right reasons, not necessarily for your selfish reasons. And a lot of times, we're always concerned about the re-election, the next election, right? If I do this, am I gonna get re-elected? If I do that, will people not like me and not elect me? It's like, you can't be thinking like that. You just gotta go, do what you think is the best, the best for all of the people make the decision, and just let it go.
0: That was Maui County Council Member Tasha Kama, who is vying to keep her seat, representing Kahului. We talked with her this morning. She is running against Buddy Nobriga.
3: The report for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. The immersive exhibition, Rebecca Louise Law, Awakening, uses plant and botanical materials to explore the human connection to the natural world. Now on view, HonoluluMuseum.org.
0: Approximately 20% of Hawai'i's population struggle to learn because they have dyslexia. That's according to the Hawai'i branch of the International Dyslexia Association. Among the local resources available for children living with disabilities is Asset School on Oahu. In recognition of October as National Dyslexia Awareness Month, it'll be holding an in-person seminar this week where uh, it'll share techniques to accommodate and support a child with dyslexia. The Conversations' Russell SubiONO got the opportunity to sit down with the assistant head of school, Sandy Tadaki, to discuss how early intervention and acceptance of who they are can help students avoid years of emotional and
6: educational struggle. When you consider in any classroom situation, if you've got 20 kids, then you've got a fair number of students who are in there who are struggling, but I think that there's maybe lack of awareness of what might be contributing to the difficulties that the students are experiencing. And sometimes when a child is a struggling learner, it manifests as maybe behaviors or emotional response. And so you don't necessarily look under the hood to try to unpack what it is that is at the root of those reactions. And so, you know, sometimes it gets misattributed. And so that's why at a really young age, if parents or teachers noticing that a student is struggling with, you know, associating the word with sounds, remembering the alphabet, you know, there are all these foundational skills that you can look at. And if those are areas that a student may be struggling in, then just keep your radar up and be on the lookout. I think, unfortunately, there is a tendency in some circles to take a wait and see approach where, you know, if a student is coming to school, In the early ages, you know, kindergarten, first grade, and they're struggling to remember the association between letters and sounds or words and pronunciations. You know, it's like, oh, you know, just give it some time. You just need more time. And then second grade comes and there's still the struggle. And then it's just kicking the ball down the road. And then the student ends up with this bona fide disability that makes it really difficult for them to be independently successful in the classroom. And that takes a tremendous toll, not just on the student, but also their family.
7: You did mention that there are maybe some varying definitions of dyslexia. Is it more like a spectrum, like autism?
6: It is on a continuum. And, and that's what's so hard. That's the frustration. And for students who, who go to school, you know, they're, they're trying their best. They want to learn. But for some reason, for them, it's not happening. And they look around and they see their classmates picking up most of them they don't know what, student, what other students are struggling. And so when they see others moving along and they're not, unfortunately they, they look inward, like what's wrong with me that I'm not getting this. And that's where things get really hard yeah. you know, for the child. That's an emotional load that they take upon themselves. Yeah. And it can cause a lot of frustration, it can cause anxiety, it can contribute to depression. And so being able to recognize the signs of children, especially when they're really young, is so important because the earlier you can intervene, the earlier you can address it so that the student can develop the appropriate skills that they need to be successful.
7: And what you've said so far, it's important to really understand a child's method of learning as early as possible so they can identify any variations in, in their learning style or any difficulties. And I read that one of the ways to be able to understand dyslexia and understand to understand how they read or learn is through psychoeducational testing. Can you talk about what that is?
6: A psychoeducational evaluation typically includes the administration of an IQ test. The test that I'm most familiar with is the Wexler Intelligence Scale for Children. And that yields information in terms of verbal problem solving, vocabulary knowledge, visual processing, novel problem solving this area called working memory and something called processing speed so you get specific information from the iq testing and then the academic testing will assess the students reading writing math and listening skills there is no one dyslexia profile Mm -hmm. but the reason why psychoeducational testing or a neuropsychological evaluation which goes more into attention and emotion and so forth the reason why this is so important is because it allows the parent to understand very specifically where the breakdown is occurring. So when the parent looks for a tutor or somebody to support their child's Mm -hmm. learning, they can do it very strategically. And so the testing helps to, it's like the onion, you're peeling it off to make sure it's not attention, it's not anxiety or whatever, that there are bona fide struggles in each of these different areas so that the parent can find a tutor to provide support in the particular areas that the child needs.
7: And once they have that information, it seems like it would make it easier for parents, for students to advocate on behalf of themselves when it comes to any learning situation. That's something that I imagine your school places a big emphasis on.
6: Absolutely. Knowledge is power. And when students come to understand their profile of strengths and challenges, then they're able to speak to that when they're asking for accommodations. And accommodations are ways to work around whatever their struggle would be. And to also know what their strengths are. You know, like some students have really great listening comprehension skills, even though the reading part is really hard and they can't read and understand. They have good listening comprehension skills. So those students could advocate for audiobooks or using the text-to-speech app on their device, or what have you. But you know, those types of things would be very effective. And so to know that, you know, reading is hard for me. And I can't read it for myself, because it takes too long. It's too effortful. I get so exhausted. But if I hear it, I can do it, I can do it. And for a student to be able to know that about themselves. And most importantly, to be able to accept that about themselves can make all the difference in the world. And the reason why the acceptance part is so critical is because when students leave us, sometimes there is a desire to want to be like everybody else and to not stand out amongst their peers. And so instead of using the audiobook or you know the text to speech or whatever it is that allows them to be able to be successful, they put that all aside and they do it the old fashioned way. And it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy. Sometimes it can detract from them having another life besides school. And so that's why, you know, not just knowing who you are, but accepting who you are. That is the most important part. And it's from that point that you can develop the self-advocacy. And all of this leads to resilience, because when you have a learning struggle, you know, you tumble and fall a lot more than the neurotypical student. And so to be able to stand up and say, you know, I can do this, I can I can do this and to keep going is so essential. And to be able to know that you're not defined by your learning difference, but that you are so much more than that and that the learning difference is just one part. And that's important to have time and opportunity to pursue the strengths and interests that you have that fill your soul, because that's what gives you the energy to do the hard work when it comes to the learning piece. And in any literature that you come upon that talks about resilience, it's always about having that balance and knowing that you're not defined by whatever your challenges are, but to have the total picture of who you are.
7: And and people with dyslexia can achieve all kinds of success. I I know there's plenty of well-known, highly successful people who have dyslexia. I've read that Steven Spielberg, the director, has dyslexia. Mm -hmm. You guys have a seminar coming up soon. Can you talk about the kinds of things you'll be sharing in that seminar?
6: Darlene Robertson, our Director of Professional Development and Outreach, is going to start off with a dyslexia simulation just to get participants into the mindset of what it might feel like to have dyslexia. And then Elsa Lee, she's a neuropsychologist who heads up our Transforming Life Center. We'll be talking about what dyslexia is and how to identify it. And then I think I'll be talking about the need for early intervention and then there'll be a Q&A type of thing. And so, you know, we welcome the public to come and to ask your questions. You know, there's no obligation, even though we have asset school, we are here as a community resource to anybody. If you have questions, call me, call Darlene, call, you know, call whoever. But we're here to help you navigate this because it can feel really lonely. It can feel really scary. And when a parent sees their kid struggling, it hurts so much. It hurts so much, and all they want is to be able to do something proactively to support their child. Our kids are smart kids, you know, and dyslexia is not related to intelligence, but yet some people have this misunderstanding about what dyslexia is, and we'd like to help clarify what that is. And so being able to know what dyslexia is, how to identify it, and what you can do to help, I think would be So important to helping our kids along in their path of life, because, you know, school is a long journey and you don't want school to get in the way of their education. You want them to just go forward and conquer and be successful because they deserve that. Right.
7: Well, thank you so much for your time, Sandy.
6: Thank you so much, Russell. I appreciate this opportunity. That was ASSET's Assistant Head of Schools,
0: uh, Sandy Tadaki, talking with HPR's Russell SubiONO about the importance of early intervention. If you think your child may have dyslexia or another learning difficulty, uh, ASSET School invites a community to take a deeper dive into understanding dyslexia at an in-person seminar on Thursday, October 20th at 5 p.m. We'll have a link to register on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today.